Well, good morning, 11 o'clock. How are you guys this morning? Good. I don't know if you know this or not, but woot is just a universal symbol for we're awake, right? So this middle section is awake, right? This other section, not so much. This other, But this section, they went woot. And some of you guys were like, meh, right? So if you need that woot power, there's coffee in the lobby so you can woot along with the best of them to show me you're awake. So, hey, if you have a Bible, I hope you do. Romans chapter seven is where we are this morning. Romans chapter seven. Um, my name is Josh Brooker. For those of you who have not gotten a chance to meet yet, I pastor in beautiful Cannon County, Tennessee. That's a universal symbol for we know where Cannon County, Tennessee is, right? So that's where the drive-in is. So uh, we've been in Romans and the Cannon County campus, just like you guys have been, and we also have been in Shelbyville. And if you have not uh, been with us, Romans is essentially a book of the Bible that gives us this blueprint for this thing called gospel. And gospel means good news. And the gospel is good news because it tells us that we can be made right with God because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. And so we, and last week we were in Romans chapter six and one of the things that we saw in Romans six is that man, we've been given so much grace from God, but grace from God is not just forgiveness from God, it's empowerment from God and enablement for God for us to live in victory over sin. And we saw last week that if we are in Christ, we are dead to sin, we are alive in God. And Pastor Corey challenged us with this idea of do we believe that we can permanently be changed and set free? That grace is not a license to sin. Grace is empowerment from God for us to live in victory over sin. This is what we saw last week. In in, in chapter seven, where we're gonna be today, we see that in Christ, we've been set free from the requirements of the law. But the law is still perfect and holy. And if you're kind of like, man, I have no idea what that means. We'll get into this. We'll talk about this. But, but there's something that we just got to admit right now. And it's this. I think a lot of us, when we first became a Christian, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower in Jesus, we hoped that there would be like this light switch moment where just like everything in our lives, when it came to obedience to God's commands and his laws, it would just get like super, super easy, right? How many of you hoped for that when you came to know Jesus? You were like, man, I just hope that like it just got really, really easy and I didn't have to worry about sin anymore. But how many of you know the exact opposite probably happened? (laughs) Right? All of a sudden, you knew what you were supposed to be doing, but you were aware that there was something inside of you now that didn't want to do that thing you were supposed to be doing. Is that familiar to anybody in the room? And some of us, we, we, we don't like that, and so what happens is we deny the struggle, but what chapter seven is going to tell us is that even as a believer, we will face a struggle, an inner battle, a war within to obey and serve God because there actually are two selves that exist in us, who we really are because we're in Christ and the remnants of the old sinful self called the flesh. So this is not like top shelf theology, philosophy for all the intellectuals in the room and the seminary students. This is like in the trenches, everyday, Monday morning, practical Christian living. And we gotta take this truth from God's word and it's gotta make that 18 inch journey from here to here. And when we get it here, it begins to influence how we live. And I've been praying for you all week and here's what I've been praying and I genuinely believe God's gonna do that this morning through his word, that, that this becomes something that changes everything about how you relate to that stubborn flesh. Because here's the deal, man. Some of us, we're, we're just not even fighting anymore. The reason that we're not living in victory over sin is because we've gotten so used to saying yes to the flesh that we don't even know what it's like to say no to ourselves anymore. You've heard it said, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, right? 
He does. Can I tell you something else? Um, Satan hates you, and he has a terrible plan for your life. And you know what it is for a lot of us? He wants to keep you so in bondage to your own struggles and sin that you are not a threat to the kingdom of darkness in the least bit. Why? Because you are so in bondage to your own struggles. And so what we're talking about today matters because I genuinely believe that the greatest war that you will ever fight as a Christian is this war within, is this inward struggle. And what we see is that deliverance in this war, salvation in this war, help in this war does not come from more of you. You are not the solution. You are actually the problem. You need a power outside of yourself, and his name is Jesus. So I'm going to ask you to pray with me this morning before we dive in here. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to bow your head. Um, Like, I know you think I'm saying this because I'm a pastor. I get paid to say this. Um, I genuinely believe that there is a God And the Bible says it's a God who sees, it's a God that knows, it's a God who communicates with his people and he communicates with his people through his word. That this word we're reading is alive, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword and the God who sees, the God who knows sees you, he sees your struggles, he sees your failures, he sees your sin, he sees your discouragement Some of you feel burnout. Some of you feel tired. So God, who sees? So God, we need your truth. Your word is a lamp to our feet. It's a light to our path. It is our only hope to find truth in the midst of these struggles, in the midst of these battles, in the midst of this conflict that we wage over our flesh. So in the name of Jesus, I pray that the spirit of the living God would be here in this room, right here, right now, and speak to every heart. God, we are masters of creating excuses and justifications for our sin. We are experts at it. We've created more excuses for sin than we can shake a stick at. But in the name of Jesus, I pray that your truth and your kindness would lead us to repentance today. That there would be victory in the hearts and lives of the men and women in this room that profess faith in Jesus. I pray for those in the room that do not profess faith in Jesus. I pray something that's said today would create a curiosity and create in them a desire to know Jesus. And I pray that people today would experience the reality of the new birth. They would become born again as a result of your work in this service. We pray for every church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, God, bigger than us, smaller than us, different from us, different sign in front of the building, who cares? If they're preaching the gospel, we pray you would grow them, you'd strengthen them, and you would unite us under one name, the name Jesus. We love you, we praise you. It's in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 7, starting at verse one. This is God's word. Or do you not know, brothers? For I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Let me just warn you, these next three verses are gonna seem really weird <laughs> because we've talked all about the law and the flesh and you're gonna be like, what? Because he starts talking about like marriage and a widow and people dying and the law and it's gonna seem really weird, but just hang with us. We'll unpack it, all right? Look at verse two. He says, for a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. 
in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's talk about what's going on in Romans. Uh, In chapter five, we saw that we have peace with God, that we have justification. That means we are made right with God. Why? Because we followed all the rules, because we were good Boy Scouts, because we recycled and walked little old ladies across the street. Is that why God saved us? No, because of Jesus and because of grace and our faith in the work of Jesus on the cross. God's law simply reveals our sin and our need for Jesus. And Paul made this amazing statement in verse 20 of chapter 5. He said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. In other words, there is no sin and there's no amount of sin that's larger than the grace of God. Are you glad for that this morning? That's really good news, right? But then in chapter 6, we see a counterbalance to this teaching on grace. Because Paul says, here's what grace really means. Grace is not a license to continue to sin so that grace may abound. Grace actually is the power that God gives us so that we can live dead to sin. And in chapter 6, what Paul said is that in Christ, we're dead to sin. We're to know our identity, who we really are in Christ. We're to put our sin to death. We're to restore God at the center of our lives. And we're to remember the consequences of sin and the rewards of obedience. He said the wages of sin is actually death. It's like that beautiful piece of fruit that you think it looks awesome and you take a bite and then you turn it around and there's a price tag that says $3,000. That's what sin is. It looks really, really good on the outside, but the wages of that master sin, it brings death to your life. So here's the million dollar question as we move into chapter seven. Is it possible to do all the things that we are called to do by the strength of our own resolve? Is the Christian life pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps? Is the Christian life us turning over a new leaf and we get all these rules and we're like, okay, now I'm gonna follow all the rules perfectly. Thank you, Jesus, for grace, but I don't really need grace anymore. I now have law, so I am going to mature and grow in Jesus through the law. Is that what the Christian life is? So we head into chapter seven and Paul begins to talk about the law. Now, he's writing to a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. So when he talks about the law, his Jewish readers would have thought about the righteous commands of God as revealed in the Old Testament, specifically the Ten Commandments. So the command not to kill, not to steal, not to commit adultery, not to covet. But he also is writing to a church made up of Gentile believers. You remember he said that the Gentiles have a law written on their hearts? Like even if you are not a religious person, before you met Jesus, you had a standard. You had a standard that you set, and that standard said, this is what it looks like to be a good person. And it was a standard that you set to prove your worth and to gain your acceptance, both in the eyes of God and yourself in the eyes of other people. And that was binding on you. But here's the amazing part of the gospel. When you came to Jesus, if you've truly been born again, you died. You died. So before you were in Christ, you were married to that law. This is this marriage and wedding metaphor and all these things. It was how you established your identity, worth, and acceptance in the eyes of God and other people. But when you came to Christ, you died. And so your marriage ended. Why? Because you died. So you're not married to those things anymore. If you're confused as to what this means, you're like, man, I have no idea what he's talking about. Let me just like distill it down for you. That means this. You died to your keeping of the law as the basis of your acceptance and value. Why are you accepted and valued by God? Is it because you've done good things and so therefore you put God on the hook and he's like, well, I mean, he's a good person. He did recycle, right? I mean, I gotta, he's good now, right? 
I'm accepting him because of how good he is. No, man, you died to that way of thinking. Why? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. The 9 a.m. missed this. Let me see if you can get this. Who is the one who has been raised from the dead? Seriously, only like the first half if you got that, right? <laughs> that's like the Sunday school VBS answer. Let's try it again. Who is that he's talking about? Okay, that's better, right? So you've been married to some of you are like, oh, wow, yeah, yeah, that's just, okay. So listen, you receive God's love, his unmerited favor, his forgiveness, and his kindness through Jesus. Not through law keeping, not through rule keeping, not through you living up to that standard, which by the way, none of us can live up to our own standards. So if you think you're a good person, man, Jesus didn't die for good people. He died for sinners. But if you came to Jesus, you were married to Jesus. And one of the reasons you were married to Jesus, Paul tells us, is so you could bear fruit for God. When you were married to the law, the fruit you produced was the fruit for death. Here's what the law does. The law exposes and amplifies our sin. I want you to imagine your bathroom mirror has a little silhouette of how you should look if you decided to stop eating so much pizza and actually hit the gym every now and again, right? So every day when you look into the mirror, it doesn't just tell you how you look, it also tells you how you should look, right? Because every time you look in the mirror, you see that your waistline should be smaller, your biceps should be more defined, your chin line should be just a little bit more chiseled, and you get really discouraged every time you look at it because you're like, man, that's how I should look, and that's how I actually look at the same time. This is what the law does. It shows us who we truly are apart from Jesus, and it shows us who we should be, that we don't have the power to be on our own. But now we've been released from the law because we've died. So we get to serve God in the new way of the Spirit. If you're still trying to struggle to understand what he's saying, here's what he's saying. Man, when you were married to that old way of living, to try to earn your acceptance and earn your value, it was that way that you gained acceptance, not just from yourself and other people, that way you gained acceptance from God. But you've been saved by Christ and you've been given acceptance from God as a gift. Which, by the way, if you could earn it, it wouldn't be grace anymore. It would be your paycheck but you've been given acceptance as a gift. And so now, if you are a believer in Jesus, you desire to obey the law, not to earn acceptance from God, but because you already have been accepted by God. In other words, this amazing gift that the gospel gives us is that now we are no longer motivated by fear, by shame, or by guilt, but now we are motivated by love. If you're a parent, what you don't want from your kids is just begrudging submission, right? You don't want your teenager to be like, okay, fine, I'll follow the rule. It's a dumb rule, I hate it. I won't get my phone taken away, <sighs> right? No parent is gonna be like, oh wow, what a joy to be your dad, right? <laughs> what, what you want is your kids to trust you and to love you, and so their obedience to you is out of love and out of trust. And if you're sitting next to your teenager, now would be a really good time to put your arm around them and say, listen, yes, this is what I desire for you, right? And in the same way, the teens are like, I hate this guy. When's Corey coming back? <laughs> in the same way, this is what God wants for us as his children, a heart that responds to him out of love. And if we love him, we will obey his commands. That's a gift of the gospel. Are you still with me? Look at verse 7. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, 
sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul would make a really, really good attorney. He's always anticipating objections that his readers might have as they read through this letter. And so he's thinking of Jewish readers that might find Paul's comments about the law offensive. Because they're reading this and they're going, well, wait a second, Paul, are you suggesting that the law is somehow sinful? Are you suggesting the law is not needed? Are you suggesting it should be thrown out? And Paul says, no, 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 no. By no means, the law is exceptionally important. The law is exceptionally useful. Here's some things that the law does. The law reveals sin. He says in verse seven, he says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. The, the law is kind of like an x-ray machine. It reveals what is there, but what is hidden. You can't blame an x-ray for what it exposes. And Paul begins to talk about this sin called covetousness. What does it mean to covet? It means to want something that is not yours that God has not given you. And this is an inner sin, a inward attitude of the heart. And covetousness is a hidden sin that most people are not going to recognize in their own lives were it not for the law of God. But the insidious thing about covetousness is it's actually the root cause of a lot of other sins. So the reason people commit adultery is because they want some, someone that they're not married to for sexual activity. And so what do they do? They commit adultery. Where did that sin start? First in the heart. Why do people steal? Because they want something that is not theirs that God has not given them, and so they steal in order to get it. But what does the law do? The law reveals the root behind the behavior. And if we didn't have the law of God, we wouldn't know that. Paul talks about in verses eight and nine that the law awakens Sin, this is a very interesting concept. He talks about in verse eight that sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment and produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Like here's what the Bible says about us. We are not just sinners by our choices. We are sinners by our very nature. David said he was conceived in iniquity and he was born out of his mother's womb speaking lies. If you doubt this theology of original sin, I wanna invite you to just volunteer in the nursery next weekend. And I promise you, you will come back believing in the doctrine of original sin. It sounded like a Civil War amputation word right uh, this morning when I went and dropped my kid off, right? Um, you don't have to teach kids how to be selfish. I don't know if you know this or not. If you're not, you don't have kids yet, you're like, oh, they're naturally good. No, like that part comes just natural. The whole sinning thing, I didn't have to teach my kids that, right? Why? Because we have a sin nature. And here's what rules do. Rules, commandments, laws awaken our sin nature in the same way a magnet draws up steel. Like if we were to be able to put up a sign and the sign says, don't touch this button and put a button underneath it. That button didn't do anything. We just have a sign that says, don't touch the button. What do you think people would do as they walk past? Right? Somebody got really excited about that. I'm going to touch that button. <laughs> because we have this sin nature and our sin nature says rules are made to be broken. Laws are made to be broken. We see a law. We see a command. We see a rule. We go, I want to break that rule. And we're like, well, why? I don't know. Just want to break it. Why? Because our human tendency is bent towards sin. And in so doing, what the law does is it shows us the absolute moral bankruptcy of the human condition. We would not know that it, were it not for the law. 
And the more of God's law, the more rules, the more commandments we learn, if we think that, man, this thing called the Bible just gives us good ideas for how to live a righteous life, and I'm just gonna read it and follow everything it says, and I'm gonna be a righteous person on my own, um, don't read it because you're gonna get really discouraged. Because here's what you'll find out. The more of God's laws, rules, and commands you learn, the greater and more pronounced your sin is going to become. Paul says our sin comes alive when we see the enormity and the darkness of our own sinfulness. We see that there's a problem. There's a brokenness in us. And guess what? Behavioral, external modification cannot fix the brokenness inside of you. There is a deeper problem. And when we see that, when we understand that, we die. We see the depths of our own depravity. We see the problem is not that we just need to tweak one or two things to give us our best life now. We see we need a savior, we need a helper, we need a deliverer. We're not able to deliver ourselves. We see that we're not able to even keep the commands of God in our own strength. But how would we know that? We only know that through the law. But he says the law kills. Listen, the harder we try to learn the law so that we can keep the law, so that we can prove we are good and worthy people on our own, the more it will absolutely kill us spiritually. Like, if you've been around legalistic Christians, you've been around legalistic churches, groups of legalistic people, I would suggest to you this is why they don't bear the fruit the Bible says is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is love. Legalistic Christians usually are not known to be loving. The Bible says the fruit of the Holy Spirit is peace and joy. Legalistic Christians are not known for, to be peace-loving people and to be joyful people. Why? Because legalism, this way of relating to God to try to earn our acceptance from God through our rule-keeping brings death, it brings death. Because the law simply proves that without Jesus, we're spiritually dead. And apart from him, we can do nothing. So Jesus says in John 15, five. And then he makes this amazing statement. He talks about the sinfulness of sin. That we might know sin to be sinful beyond measure. See, the law is holy, it's just, it's good. But the law reveals sin to be something far darker and more deadly than we so often are willing to admit. We've created this weird Christian subculture that we tried to keep safe for the whole family and everything is happy, clappy, positive, Chick-fil-A, which I love Chick-fil-A, so I'm not talking about it, I'm just saying. And so what happens is we excuse our sins as things like mistakes, failures, and shortcomings. That's all it is, it's whoopsie daisies, right? Nobody's perfect. But in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we see that anytime God spoke, the entire cosmos obeyed. He said, let there be light, there was light. Every time he spoke, the entire cosmos obeyed. There was one creature in the entire universe that had the audacity to look at Almighty God and say, no! I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. It's because I think I'm smarter than you. And that was the human being. So what is sin? Is it simply a shortcoming, a failure, a whoopsie-daisy? No, it's an act of cosmic treason. But how would we know that? Only through the law. The law shows sin to be sinful beyond measure. Some of us, you hear me say that, and you cringe, and you bristle, and you're like, absolutely not. It cannot be that. Listen, true repentance is where all your excuses fall down, and you simply agree with God's assessment of your sin not just a shortcoming or a failure. It is you have committed an act of cosmic treason against the holy God. You have rebelled and said, I think I'm smarter than you and I'm gonna do what I'm gonna do. And when you repent, that's when you say, I, I actually agree with what your word says about my sin. But how would we have true repentance were it not for the law of God? This is why Paul says the law is needed. Are you, are you still with me this morning? There's hope, man. There's hope. Let's, let's just stick with this. Look at verse 17. Or excuse me, verse 14. For we know... 
But the law is spiritual. But I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Look at me for a second. Is that familiar to anybody else in the room but me? This battle, man, you know, you, you, there's things you need to do that you should be doing, but you're like, man, I, I wanna do that, but there's like, I don't have the ability to do it. Look at verse 19. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So God's commands, they are holy, they're just, they're good, they're spiritual, they're useful in every way for showing us our sin, our need for a savior, our need for salvation. But here's the problem. The law is spiritual. The law is spiritual. And like, I'm not. <laughs> We're of the flesh, sold under sin. So the law deals with the inner spiritual part of us that motivates our external behavior. But what Paul is describing is something we are all too familiar with. Maybe we've never seen it verbalized or put into words. But what Paul is describing is this reality that even after we've been born again within us, there exists an old fleshly nature that does not want to obey the law of God. Simply doesn't want to do it. And verses 15 and 16 speak of this all too familiar struggle in the life of a Christian. He says, I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, and the whole time I agree with the law. See, the problem Paul is talking about is not a lack of desire. He says, I delight in the law of God in my innermost being. Like, you cannot delight in the law of God unless you've been born again and regenerated, by the way. So it's not that he didn't want to do the right thing. He wants to please God. He wants to obey God. He wants to stay away from sin. His problem isn't a lack of knowledge. He says, I agree with the law. I know the law, I know the right thing to do. I know the wrong things I shouldn't be doing. The problem he's describing is a lack of power. He does not have the power because the law cannot provide him the power. Here's what the law says. The law says, here are the rules, you better keep the rules. But the law does not give us any power to actually keep the rules. It shows us that we're unable to keep the rules. So what is Paul doing? He is setting us up and pointing us to the hope that we have outside of ourselves. What we need is a power outside of ourselves to live in victory over the sin that still dwells in our flesh. Now, what is the flesh? Does that mean your body is bad and God hates your body? No, our flesh that Paul's referring to is our mind, our body, and our spirit apart from Jesus. Remnants of the old self, remnants of the sinful nature. We live in a culture that is obsessed with self-esteem. We're obsessed with self-acceptance. We're obsessed with self-care. We are professional navel gazers. We are always talking about how good we are. If we just get past all the other things of self-acceptance, then we would be saved, then we would be redeemed. But I want you just to pay attention to what God's word says, and it is absolutely counterculture to everything you're being preached every time you turn on the television and the radio. Nothing good dwells in our flesh. Here's what that means. Our hearts apart from God are corrupted. Our hearts apart from God are self-centered. 
Our hearts apart from God are so rebellious to the laws of Almighty God that we cannot look at anything in us apart from Jesus and say, yeah, that's good. No, it's not good. It's been corrupted by sin. But here's the beauty of the gospel. If you are in Christ, that's not you anymore. <laughs> You've died, man. That's what he says in chapter six. If you're in Christ, your true self has been saved, forgiven, redeemed, you're dead to sin, you're alive by the Spirit, you have new desires to please God and do what's right. The Bible says, if you're in Christ, the old is gone, the new has come. How many of you are grateful for that this morning? But let's be honest, right? That's not the only one living in there. <laughs> like, that's who we really are. That's who Jesus has declared us to be because of the gospel, but then there's like this other guy, right? <laughs> Um, I, I try to get up early in the morning before my wife and children wake up and read my Bible and pray and exercise. That's a habit I've tried to build for myself because if I don't do it then, it probably will never happen. And I wanna do that. I desire to do that. Like my, Myself right now, I'm just telling you, man, I long for those moments. Those are some of the sweetest moments of prayer and reading the Bible. But at 5.30 in the morning, my alarm goes off. It's usually the other guy that talks first, right? He's like, hey, man, why, why don't we not do that today, Right? It's Monday. You have to do this like every day. I mean, surely, right? You can skip a day here or there, right? I, I want to be generous with the things that God has given me. I want to give faithfully because God has given me so much. But every time it's time for me to give generously, this other guy steps up and goes, well, I mean, like maybe not that much. Maybe shave a little bit off because you got to have a little bit for yourself too, right? I want to be compassionate and kind and caring to people who are hurting. That's what I really want. But there's this other guy that every time I see someone who's in need and who's hurting and I know I need to talk to them and pray with them, the other guy goes, yeah, yeah, but what if you didn't, right? You're going to be late for lunch and you're like really hungry and that's more important right now, right? So that's my other guy. Paul writes about his other guy. What's your other guy like? I would suggest to you that your sin nature is a lot like mine, a lot like Paul's. It, it never wants to do what is right. It only wants to live for self. It always wants the path of least resistance. It always wants the path to the greatest immediate pleasure, no matter what the cost is. The other guy goes so far as to even wage war against the law of our mind and take us prisoners to the law of sin. What is he talking about? Our sinful nature is a master at creating excuses and justifications for sin and selfish behavior. Never underestimate the power of your flesh to create an excuse for your own selfishness. Never underestimate the power of your flesh to create an excuse for your own sin. Why? Because your flesh wages war against the law of our mind and takes us prisoners to the law of sin. This is what Paul is talking about. So even when we have been saved and born again and regenerated and we want to do the right thing and we delight in the law of God in our innermost being, this sin nature is always there. It's always lurking in the background. It's always trying to get its way. It's always vouching for, hey, why don't you feed me? Why don't you listen to me? And these two selves are what we encounter each and every day when we wake up in the morning. There's the nature of who we are in Christ of the Spirit, and there's the old nature of the flesh, and they're both at war. They're both working against each other. They both hate each other. They want the other guy dead. I want to ask you a question, though. How do you kill the other guy? Just knowing more rules? You get a new book that says eight ways to be a new Christian this time next week, right? You sign up for a program and other guy's dead. Ha <laughs> ha, thanks program. No, no, look, look at verse 24. This is what Paul says. He says, wretched man that I am, who? Notice he doesn't say what. He doesn't say what rule, what program, what law, what command. No, who? 
will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. He uses the word wretched. <laughs> we don't like use that word anymore. It just sounds like a nasty word, doesn't it? Wretched, right? It's just a gross word, right? It implies exhaustion, weariness, failure. See, anytime we try to please God under the principle of the law, it will always lead us 10 times out of 10, 100% of the time to a place of exhaustion and failure. See, legalism, this way that we relate to God, thinking if we keep the rules, we can earn his acceptance and we can be valuable because we've kept the rules, that will always lead us face-to-face with our own wretchedness. And when we get face-to-face with our own wretchedness, we have two choices. The first choice is we can either deny our wretchedness and become self-righteous, in which case we become a worse monster than we were before, or we can despair and give up following after God. G.K. Chesterton wrote that the Christian life has not been tried and found wanting. It's been tried and found difficult. So what happens is we see the Christian life and we try to relate to Jesus through all these rule keepings and we get exhausted and we go, man, I can't do this. This is hard. I don't know if I can keep it. So we walk away. But here's what Paul is getting us to see. We are wretches. We're wretches in need of deliverance. So he says, who? Who is going to deliver me? What he's saying is this, and he's getting us to see this. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We need a Deliverer. And so when our perspective finally turns away from our own self-focus and self-obsession against our struggles against sin, and we start looking at us and we start looking at Jesus, that's when we start to see hope and victory and deliverance. But when we live under the law, And we look at self and we look at personal performance. Here's what happens, man. We feel great despair when we're blowing it and we feel great self-righteous pride when we're knocking it out of the park according to our own standards. And both are Christless. But when we turn our eyes away from us and we start looking at Jesus, we start to see hope and deliverance and salvation and we have something to thank God for. Like worship happens in our lives when we stop just this, this, this culture of navel-gazing where we just come together and it's all about us. It's all about our brokenness and our struggles and I'm broken, you're broken. Oh, we're all broken, 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 broken. Okay, cool. Um, what about Jesus, right? <laughs> what about Jesus? Like, is, is the life of the Christian all about the, the Christian or is it about the Christ? Like, I thought that was the whole gig of like being a Christian. It's about Jesus, right? So when we start looking to Jesus, we understand we've received his love, we've received his unmerited favor, we've received his forgiveness, we've received his kindness, we've received his acceptance, not because of our conformity to the law, because of what he's done. But at the same time, like Paul doesn't deny this struggle. I love how this chapter ends. He says, yeah, I thank God, but I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Everybody say the struggle is real. Two of you said that because the rest of you are like, that's so cheesy. I'm not saying that, right? (laughs) Just seeing if you're still awake. Listen, when we acknowledge the struggle, we're saying, yeah, there's a struggle. Yeah, there's a war I need to be fighting, but I now have freedom to bear fruit for God. Why? Because I'm looking to Jesus, and when I look to Jesus and I realize his great love for me in spite of my sinfulness, he loves me not because of my performance. He loves me because he's good, not because I'm awesome. That motivates me to want to obey him out of a heart of love. I need you to know this. You already do, but I'm just going to tell you, rules and laws can't create love. Rules and laws can't create love. If you're my friend, and you need to know this about me, I absolutely loathe and detest the song Love Shack by the B-52s. I hate it. 
Worst song in the history of humanity, right? I really believe it's part of the curse of sin. And when Paul writes about the thorn in his flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him, he's talking about that song. That's how bad I hate that song, right? If we're riding in your car and that song's on the radio, I'm gonna reach over you, turn off your radio, or if I can't get to the radio, I'm gonna open the car door, roll out the car. That's how much I hate that song. <laughs> Worst song ever. You could create a rule. You could create a law that says every Tuesday at 3 p.m., Josh Brooker has to listen to the Love Shack by the B-52s. And you could hold a gun to my head and say, if you don't do it, I'm gonna shoot you. And I probably would listen to your stupid little song. But you could never create a rule or a law that says I have to love that song. Man, I'll obey. I'm not gonna like that song though. On the other hand, there is music that I listen to and I listen to that music and I keep coming back to that music, not because there's a rule or a law that says that I have to keep coming back and listening to that music every single week. I listen to that music because I love that music. So there's no rule or law that says I have to do that. I do that simply because I love to do that. In the same way, the Bible says that we love because he first loved us. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. So how do we truly create fruit for God? We first realize how much we're loved by God through Jesus, then we respond to him in love, and that love creates obedience. It's not rules, it's not laws, it's love. You've died to the law, now you're married to Jesus, and he loves you perfectly because you love him. You wanna obey him. But we gotta be honest though, we're still gonna struggle. There's still gonna be this constant war in our inner lives over sin. But here's the idea, and I need you to hear me this morning. We must be willing to fight. We must be willing. The reason so many of us don't live in victory is because we're spiritually lazy and we're so used to saying yes to the flesh, we have never once in our life ever said no to him. You gotta be willing to say no. You gotta be willing to say yes to Jesus and no to yourself. Listen, we fight when we look at Jesus we fight when we put our sin to death. We fight when we choose a lifestyle of joyful obedience and trusting surrender. The longer I do this, the more, I can, the more convinced I am that Jesus wants our entire life. He doesn't just want episodes. You know what I mean? They just want like once a week, you come here at church, and you feel the liver quivers and you're sobbing. I'm sorry, Jesus. Then you leave here and you forgot what it is you even told Jesus while you were here in the worship service. Like, listen, Jesus doesn't just want one hour of your week. He wants to be married to you. <laughs> So this whole thing called Christianity, it's not like me selling you a vacuum cleaner and okay, enter into the secret handshake with Jesus and okay, cool, I'm never going to hell now. Awesome, I got my magic ticket to heaven. It is you choosing to align yourself in intimacy with your new husband, his name is Jesus. And listen, if you're truly born again, you need to know that you fight from victory, not for it. Here's what I mean by that. If you are in Christ, here's how your story ends. Your story, regardless of how it feels in the moment, regardless of how lonely and overwhelming and discouraged you feel right now in your struggle against sin, your story ends with you beholding him in his glory and you being transformed by that glory into a perfect, sinless, resurrected body. You fight from victory not for victory, and in the here and now, every day, you are being transformed and remade by the Holy Spirit, but you have a responsibility. You can either be filled with the Holy Spirit and say yes and cooperate with the work of God in your life to give you victory over your flesh, or you can quench the Holy Spirit. That is your choice each and every day. To quench the Holy Spirit means to take a bucket of water and throw it over a fire. The Holy Spirit is always moving and always leading you away from sin and pointing you towards Jesus. But in that moment, you have a choice of what you do with it. You can either say yes to the Holy Spirit and that fire grows. 
Or you can take a bucket of water and you can throw it over the Holy Spirit. In which case, that conviction that the Holy Spirit brings diminishes and gets smaller and smaller and smaller and the power of your flesh grows and grows and grows and grows and grows. You have a choice. You have a choice. This is the war within. Wish I could tell you it's easy. Can I be honest with you? It's not. It's not. It's painful. It's difficult. It hurts. But here's what this passage is telling me. I've died to the law and now I'm married to Jesus. That means he accepts me and he loves me not because I have the ability to be a good person on my own. (laughs) He accepts me, he loves me, I am valuable in his eyes. Why? Because of what he has done in going to the cross for me. This text tells me that the law is good. I don't just throw it out and go, well, I can't keep it, so thank God for grace, not gonna read my Bible anymore. No, the law reveals that without Jesus, I'm spiritually dead. That apart from Jesus, I can do nothing. But if I'm in Jesus, abiding in Jesus, and his love is abiding in me, then I'm gonna strive each and every day to live in obedience to him. Why? Because I love him. And I love him, and I wanna obey him. This text tells us that in our struggle to keep the law, our problem is not lack of knowledge. Our problem is not even a lack of desire to keep it. Our problem is that in and of ourselves, we have no power over the old self. You are not the solution to your problems. The call of the gospel is not, hey, fix yourself, buckaroo. The call of the gospel is lift up your eyes to your hope, your Messiah, your salvation, your deliverer, and his name is Jesus. And we find deliverance in our inner struggle over sin by looking to Jesus. Man, when is it that we stopped focusing on Jesus and just became a society of professional navel gazers, so obsessed with our own brokenness that we've forgotten that we have any hope. That doesn't identify you anymore. Are you serious? Do you realize what Jesus went through for you? We look at him. But at the same time, we acknowledge our struggle. At the same time, we realize we are fighting from a place of victory, not for victory. So I'm closing this morning. I have three questions for you. The first is this, what do you believe is the basis of God's acceptance of you? Is it your performance? <laughs> you still living according to that old law, the standard you've created for yourself? Or maybe you're looking at the commands of God and you're like, man, I, I, I can't do that. God doesn't love me. God doesn't accept me. No, if you are in Christ, you are loved, you're accepted, you're valued, you're cherished. Why? Because of Jesus. Every Christian I've ever met that truly understands this gospel says that they're saved by grace. But something happens. Something gets broken here and gets broken here. We go, God, you saved me through grace, but now that you've saved me, I'm gonna work this thing out by myself. I don't need you anymore because you gave me grace and that was grace to forgive me of my sins. Now, I've got it. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for the rules. I'm gonna keep all the rules. I'm gonna sign up for the programs. I'm gonna get busy with all the religious activity and that's gonna make me a really good Christian. I just wanna tell you that's a lie from the pit of hell. When you receive salvation, it was the beginning of a journey with Jesus. And you stay on that journey through staying as close to Jesus as possible. You grow and mature through intimacy with Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we look to Jesus and his work in our life for victory in the world within. Is there a struggle? Yeah. Is there a war? Yeah. But who's victorious in that war? Your champion, Jesus. Your Messiah, Jesus. Your Savior, Jesus. Turn your eyes on Jesus. 
And when you do, the things of this earth go strangely dim. We pray together this morning. Holy Spirit, you are here. You're moving. You're showing up. For some of my brothers and my sisters, it's been a long time since they felt you. It's been a long time since they acknowledged your nearness. Father, we ask for the grace right now in this moment to not quench your work, but instead to be filled by the Spirit. I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that have been saying yes to their flesh each and every day. They've been surrendering to their flesh. They've been surrendering to the power of the flesh over and over and over again. I I can't even remember the last time they said no to the flesh. I pray right now in the name of Jesus that your spirit right now will give them the power through the resurrected King Jesus to say no to the flesh and to say yes to King Jesus. Empower us supernaturally to be people of obedience. We love you, Jesus. We thank you, you've accepted us and forgiven us because of your grace. And we ask in the name of Jesus that you would empower us supernaturally to be obedient to your commands because we love you and we wanna please you and we wanna serve you and we thank you for loving us and accepting us in spite of us. You came in the room this morning, you should have received a little kit for communion. I'm gonna ask you right now, if you have that, will you get that out, but don't take that yet. Just keep your eyes closed and your head bowed. Listen, um, communion is an exceptionally important symbol. It's a symbol that the word of God gives us that shows we have been saved because of the broken body of Jesus and because the shed blood of Jesus And here's what the Bible says in the book of 1 Corinthians. It says that when we take this, we don't take this in an unworthy manner. That means we don't take it flippantly. We don't take it casually. We don't slam it and try to get out the door to pick up our kids and beat the Baptist to lunch. Because you can't, right? They got out early, right? No, we, we take it reverentially. We take it worshipfully. We take it reflecting on the truth of God's word. We take it reflecting, listen, on the truth of our own lives. So if there is sin in your life, whether, man, that's like a blatant open sin that you're walking in right now and you're like, man, I need to let go of that, here's your opportunity. You do not have to leave this room the same way you came in. Or if there is an inner sin in your heart that nobody knows but you and God, maybe it's that sin of covetousness. Maybe it's that sin of judgmentalism. Maybe you have hatred in your heart. You hate people, but nobody knows. I wanna remind you of what we started this service off saying. There is a God who sees And so your invitation is to come to the table with Jesus this morning and to receive his shed blood and his broken body. And before you do that, the invitation is let go of that hammer that nailed him up to that cross. So I'm gonna step off the platform and I'm gonna get quiet and we're gonna spend some time. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's in a rush to get out of here. We're reflecting on the truth of what we read. We're pondering the greatness and the mercy and the goodness of God that he would be willing to die for you And when you've done business with God, 
You can take your communion as a symbol of what he's done for you. There'll be people up here to my right, your left. They'd love to pray with you about anything going on in your life. We've got Pastor Carl up here if you have questions about anything. But listen, do not, do not, do not squander this moment by throwing a bucket of water on the fire of the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We bless you. Give us the power to live in accordance to the identity you've provided for us through your son, Jesus. It's in his holy name we pray.